Welcome to Raz Talk, the podcast on recirculating aquaculture systems and sustainable food production. Brought to you by Raz Tech, the premier publication for Raz professionals. This podcast is sponsored by Innovacy. Innovacy, aquatic solutions built for life. Welcome to this episode of Raz Talk. I'm Katerina Muya, Raz Talk co-host and editor of Raz Tech and Hatchery International Magazines. I'm joined today by my co-host, Brian Vinci, director of the Conservation Fund Freshwater Institute. Thanks, Kat. Today we are talking about the use of recirculating aquaculture systems in public fish hatcheries. State, provincial, and federal fish hatcheries have a long history in North America, dating back to the 19th century. In fact, fish culture methods used in today's commercial aquaculture industry were first developed at public fish hatcheries. And not only were the basics developed there, but many fish culture innovations of the last 200 years were first developed at public fish hatcheries. Innovations including breeding techniques to close the life cycle of species, gas conditioning, dry feed formulations, and even water reuse. Water reuse developed at public fish hatcheries was initially very basic, just reusing water from one pond to the next until it was no longer usable for fish culture. But as the understanding of fish biology and water quality increased, so did the ways in which water was treated for water reuse. Some of the very first water reuse systems that included a biofilter, oxygenation, and solids control were built at public fish hatcheries in the 1970s. These basic RAS were predecessors to the intensive RAS used in commercial operations today. There are a good number of water reuse systems and intensive RAS at public fish hatcheries currently, but few public fish hatchery programs have adopted intensive RAS, like the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Here to discuss this adoption of RAS technology today are two professionals from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, Jeff Milton, Sport Fish Hatchery Program Supervisor, and Travis Heyer, Ruth Burnett, Sport Fish Hatchery Manager. Jeff has worked in salmonid aquaculture for over 30 years, raising rainbow trout, steelhead, Arctic grayling, Arctic char, lake trout, and all five species of Pacific salmon. He managed the design, construction, and operation of fish handling, egg take, and aquaculture systems for six private and state hatcheries, including the Jack Hernandez Sport Fish Hatchery in Anchorage. He has extensive experience working with flow-through and partial water reuse systems for raceway and circular tank systems, in addition to 95 to 98% RAS circular tank systems. Travis is the hatchery manager for the Ruth Burnett Sport Fish Hatchery in Fairbanks, which uses a combination of flow-through, partial reuse, and 95 to 98% RAS. He has worked in cold water enhancement hatcheries for 19 years, 17 of them with partial water reuse and RAS systems rearing rainbow trout, Arctic grayling, Arctic char, coho salmon, Chinook salmon, and lake trout. Travis was a member of the Alaska Department of Fish and Game Design and Construction team for the development, construction, and operation of the Ruth Burnett Sport Fish Hatchery. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining Brian and I today for this episode of RAS Talk. You both have extensive experience rearing fish in public sport fish hatcheries. So could you both please talk to me about your background and how you came to be in the positions you are today? This is Jeff Melton. Um, I've worked with private and state hatcheries in Oregon while I was earning my bachelor's of fisheries biology degree at Oregon State. I eventually managed three private nonprofit salmon hatcheries in Prince William Sound, producing hundreds of millions of Pacific salmon each year. 
before I signed on with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game in 1999 to manage the Fort Richardson hatchery and then accepted my current job as the Sport Fish Hatchery Program Supervisor responsible for staffing, funding, and planning of production, focused on providing sport fish opportunities while safeguarding wild fish populations in Alaska. Great, thank you so much, Jeff. And Travis, if you'd like to go ahead and kind of give us a background. Yeah, hi, this is Travis Heyer, um, hatchery manager for the Ruth Grant Sport Fish Hatchery. Initially, my college education um, was in wildlife biology here at University of Alaska Fairbanks. Kind of wanted to be a wildlife biologist originally. Um, but then I took a job in 2002 with the last Department of Fish and Game as a college intern down in Anchorage, um, working at the now closed uh, Elmendorf Hatchery. Um, two years later, I, I took a job back here in Fairbanks um, as a technician, and I helped run um, our, our pilot scale hatchery that we did um, in preparation for the design and construction of the, the two new hatcheries in the state. Um, and this was my first introduction to partial reuse and grass systems. Um, after the Ruth Burnett Hatchery was completed, um, I became the assistant manager um, and then transitioned to um, becoming the manager three years ago. Uh, my current job is to oversee uh, all the aspects of the hatchery operation, including production, facility, and budget management. Great. Thanks, guys. Jeff, I'm so glad we have an opportunity to talk uh, on the podcast about RAS at Public Fish Hatcheries. We've known each other since you and Larry Pelt started Alaska Fishing Game on the Journey to Adopt Rass uh, way back in 2001. I can't believe it's been 20 years. Can you tell our listeners what motivated you to evaluate and ultimately adopt Rass for the Alaska Sport Fish Hatchery Program? Um, I guess to be honest, failure. And when I arrived at the Fort Rich Hatchery in 1999, the facility was unable to achieve pretty much any production goal that it had set for itself. It was water limited. It was a serial reuse raceway setup that had no isolation between species, stock, or year class. We had disease outbreaks on a regular basis, and uh, it was just a battle day to day to keep fish healthy, let alone alive. And so we started looking at ways to, to make it better. Prior to my arrival, they had, they had attempted um, several fixes to the facility. One was to drill additional shallow wells to provide more water. It turned out that these shallow wells were essentially more infiltration galleries from the surface water supply. The, the creek that ran by the hatchery and, and it didn't um, alleviate any of the disease issues and the water supply was not as great as expected. They then attempted a $2 million water treatment facility um, add on to the, to the hatchery. And that was a complete failure in every aspect that it was attempted to address. With the staff that was there, we began trying new configurations, um, tried to reuse water within standalone rearing units. We were able to isolate our startup raceways from our grow out raceways. And we were finally able to isolate at least species, but not all the stocks. Even through that, we weren't achieving the production goals or maintaining adequate fish health. 
and the system was labor intensive to maintain. So we, we eventually started looking into to recirculating systems, RAS, and developed a pilot system there at Fort Richardson, a standalone RAS system, and found that we could actually keep fish alive in it. And not only that, we could grow them in there and keep them healthy, which was a real surprise to us. The thing that kind of broke the camel's back with regard to maintaining or trying to improve that existing facility was we lost the free heat that was coming from the power plant next door. And when, when that resource went away, we could no longer produce our catchable products and knew that we had to do something profoundly different than what we had been doing in the past. And RAS looked like a real promising way to go. Got it. So, so I guess it was the loss of free heated water that really kickstarted that process in Anchorage. But what about the hatchery, the Ruth Burnett hatchery in Fairbanks? What kind of kickstarted that process for you guys, Jeff? It was part of the overall program evaluation that we underwent um, once we realized we were going to have to do something much different than what we were had been doing. Um, locating new facilities was a critical first step, and we wanted to put them where they had access to, to support with utilities and, and other freight access, that sort of thing. And we had been hauling all the fish for the Fairbanks area up from Anchorage, which is not a small task. And so we, we wanted to see what, what it might require to establish and operate a, a hatchery in Fairbanks. And then that's where Travis's work really really started to kick in. So I, I can let Travis kind of explain what we did up in, up in Fairbanks. So we started uh, initial work up here in um, about 2003 to develop a, a pilot scale hatchery to, to kind of prove the basis for looking at our water use and, um, and, and the, the partial reuse and RAS technologies. Fairbanks is blessed with uh, virtually unlimited amounts of groundwater, um, but the price that we pay for that is it does contain um, elevated levels of iron and manganese that we have to remove. So much of our work in, in the initial stages of design and siting was looking at trying to be able to remove that. Travis, I was fortunate to visit you at the pilot RAS in Fairbanks. I think it was 2008 or 2009. And I'd say I visited fish hatcheries all over the world, but the pilot at the Fairbanks power plant really sticks out in my mind. I guess it was because it was 40 below when I visited. Um, but at the time, uh, as you mentioned, you were uh, looking at the iron and manganese removal from the well water. Um, is that something that you guys ended up having to scale up for the full scale Ruth Burnett hatchery? Yeah, it was. Um, we knew going into it from the, from the work of the pilot scale hatchery that uh, iron filtration was going to be required for this facility. Um, and, and that was uh, something that we were going to have to incorporate. So we, we do run basically small municipal level water treatment facility here in addition to the fish production. We ended up on a system that was slightly different um, than the original pilot scale equipment. That did not unfortunately scale up as we had run into pilot um, and we had to try some new technologies there. What we ended up with was a somewhat novel two-stage filtration that uses um, a biologic mechanism for iron removal followed by a more chemical oxidation pathway for manganese removal. 
it, it was a, a challenge to get going and, and one and did delay the initial start of the hatchery operation. But ultimately, we ended up with a system that's been fairly robust and um, has worked very well for us. It does take some learning, um, but ultimately, our water is of really high quality and has worked very well for our systems. Travis, what levels of iron do you want to see coming out of the treatment system? And actually, what is it coming in before treatment? So our, our groundwater um, iron levels are about six um, milligrams per liter of iron and about 0.7 to 0.6 milligrams per liter of manganese. Um, the target goals that we set for our water treatment system um, are less than 0.1 milligram per liter for um, iron and less than 0.05 milligrams per liter for uh, drink or for the manganese. This presented a little bit of a challenge during design because they're, at least for the iron, um, it's significantly less than um, is required for drinking water standards. Um, drinking water standard is 0.3 for iron. So we had to run a more stringent and a higher standard to get where we wanted to be. Well, 0.1 milligrams per liter is, is a pretty um, stringent requirement. Um, I've worked with a, a bunch of fish hatcheries that are uh, in that 0.1 to 0.2 range, and they all seem to do well. So I expect you guys do well. And I just want to go back to something Jeff said about the heated water that broke the camel's back and, and kind of forced the decision to pursue RAS technology. Jeff, I think some of our listeners uh, don't have a good appreciation for how cold the water is uh, up, up in uh, the Anchorage area. And I remember the first time I went up and visited, I was shocked to learn that the water in the Elmendorf hatchery was essentially uh, 0.1 or you know 32.1 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So you know maybe could you could you talk a little bit about that, like the growth that you would be losing if you didn't have heated water, and the and the difficulties that you ran into without having the access to the heated water from the power plant? Yeah, um, our most heat intensive production is rainbow trout catchable. We're trying to achieve a, a essentially a 10 to 12 inch rainbow trout in 12 months of rearing. And in the lower 48, I, I never had a problem getting an inch of growth on a rainbow trout every month. Up here, we were able to do that when we were taking the waste heat from the power plants and, and scavenging that to raise our, our rearing temperatures. As soon as the power plants went cold, our fish essentially stopped growing. Rainbow trout being as aggressive as they are would continue to feed, but they essentially just stopped as far as the growth. We tried for over two years to, to make a catchable rainbow trout on that ambient temperature water. And even after 24 months, we couldn't couldn't get a fish to 10 inches. So it was pretty obvious that uh, under ambient conditions, we were never gonna achieve any of the growth goals, you know, let alone production numbers. Even if we could have achieved a catchable rainbow trout in two years, we'd have had to cut our uh, production in half to do that. So yeah, it, it basically made our facilities useless at that point in time. Yeah, I, I remember talking with you about some of those difficulties and and you sharing some data with me of, at, at Almendorf and how little uh, the, I think it was the Chinook were growing on that, uh, on that ambient water. It was amazingly slow. 
Um, but now uh, you have new hatcheries and, uh, and, a and a special one there in Anchorage. So let's talk a little bit about what the full-scale hatcheries using RAS look like in Alaska. Jeff, first to you. Can you give an overview of the Jack Hernandez Sport Fish Hatchery Bio Program and the RAS built to accomplish that? And then to Travis, the same thing for the Ruth Burnett Sport Fish Hatchery. Yes, the uh, William Jack Hernandez Hatchery here in Anchorage is our largest facility. It houses um, both resident species production for lake stocking and Chinook and coho salmon production for anadromous stocking of uh, terminal release sites. We produce about 2 million Chinook salmon smolt and about a million coho salmon smolt from full RAS systems and uh, produce a quarter million rainbow trout catchables. And when we're at full production, we also produce Arctic grayling, Arctic char, and um, lake trout. So it houses a, a very wide variety of programs. Um, within that facility, we also maintain two captive brood stocks, Arctic char, which require four year classes to be isolated um, until maturity, and then rainbow trout, which are derived from a wild population on the Kenai area. And that is a, a three-year or a three-brood brood year um, population that we maintain inside the facility. The, the hatchery itself is over three acres under one roof. It contains over 100 individual rearing units and 15 isolated RAS systems, in addition to a variety of partial RAS and flow through systems. So it's a, it's a pretty complex facility. From an efficiency standpoint, it's probably not the same facility that a commercial aquaculture program would build. Because we have so many isolated systems, it requires more attention than it would if it were one or two very large RAS systems. But it's what we needed to do to isolate all those stocks and programs that we had in the facility. Right. And before we jump over to Ruth Burnett Hatchery in Fairbanks, Jeff, as I recall, the, the sport fish hatchery that the William Jack Hernandez Hatchery supports in Anchorage, I think it's the Ship Creek, uh, is one of the, the major fisheries um, that you support. I, I think, is it correct that that is the largest value sport fish hatchery um, in America? I don't know about America, but it's the most um, popular salmon fishery in the state of Alaska in terms of angler days or effort um, to harvest those returning fish. So it is, it, it is a very big player in the sport angling opportunity, especially in South Central Alaska. Right. You always describe the fishing there as, um, is this right, combat fishing? Is that what you call it? <laughs> but it can be at times our, our goal is to minimize that aspect of it um, but there are several fisheries in the state of Alaska that get that way just because of the somewhat neurotic nature of uh, the way the summer progresses we go from locked in snow and ice to 24 hours of daylight and fish showing up everywhere so yeah it uh, gets kind of frenetic I, I have seen a few of the pictures of of folks fishing uh, shoulder to shoulder there in Ship Creek, not too far <laughs> from, 
from the Elmendorf. Okay, let's go over to Travis. Um, Travis, Ruth Burnett, can you um, give a quick overview on this FISH program and then the uh, recirculating systems that um, are built to accomplish that? The bulk of our production is, is focused around producing a, a, a catchable sized fish. We also have a high focus on diversity. So just like Anchorage, um, we produce or have the ability to produce up to six different species, including rainbow trout, Arctic char, Arctic grayling, king salmon, coho salmon, and um, lake trout. We produce about 450,000 fish a year, um, and that makes up about 45,000 kilograms of fish for production annually. Um, we do that through a combination of systems. Um, our, our incubation system is a traditional um, vertical tray incubation system. Um, just on flow through um, and then we transition into um, flow through and partial reuse rearing modules um, we have uh, 20 different modules for tanks and 10 different modules um, for again for that isolation between species and stocks um, that was critical in the design of both facilities and then our our grow out production um, for rainbow trout arctic grayling and king salmon is in full RAS systems um, and, and those modules, we have five different modules that we operate to, to achieve our program goals. So for all the millions of fish that um, the sport fish hatchery produces, Jeff, what's the, do you have a, a number for the water use at the Hernandez hatchery and then at the Ruth Burnett hatchery, gallons per minute or something like that? Yeah, I think our average um, flow into the William Jack facility is about 1,500 gallons a minute most of the year. And I think Travis probably has more accurate numbers for Ruth Burnett. Yeah, we average um, about 300 gallons a minute across the year. Um, much of the year spent at 200 gallons per minute. Um, and then the high point of the year for a couple months is about 400 um, is, is our high point. Oh, so these facilities sound incredible. I'm really hoping that I have the opportunity to visit someday. Although Brian mentioned below 40 degree weather and I'm in Toronto today, it's 20 degrees and I'm freezing, so I don't know how I'll survive, <laughs> <laughs> but but we'll see. So can you both tell our listeners um, about who designed the, uh, the recirculating aquaculture systems and if there were any design and construction challenges that really stood out to you during the process? Uh, Jeff, if you'd like to go first. Yes, um, we contracted with PR Aqua to provide both design and supply of equipment with regard to the fish culture systems themselves. In addition to that, they provided a warranty to that, those systems that guaranteed um, system performance throughout two full production cycles. We had realized through this entire development process that you might have the right parts and pieces all put together at a facility, but unless they're working together properly, it could be a spectacular failure. So we wanted to, to get somebody with the knowledge and experience on the hook and keep them around long enough to get us up and running and make sure that, that we knew what we were doing before we took full responsibility for maintaining the systems and producing fish. And Pure Aqua understood that concern and worked with us to, to provide the training to our staff and then the long-term support to make sure that these facilities would operate into the future. I think our biggest challenge 
between the two facilities was the water filtration system in Fairbanks. I know Travis touched on it a bit. Yeah, I would say the, the biggest challenge that I would say from not only the water treatment system, but also um, just general construction was being able to communicate to design and construction managers that, that we were a very different facility and had very different um, requirements than standard um, construction. So many times, including the water treatment system, I think we got plug and play systems that had been used elsewhere and um, didn't understand the complexities of adapting those systems to our facilities. Um, and um, the, even just simple things like the yellow metals requirement. Um, that was a common, <laughs> common thing during construction was getting people not to use uh, yellow metals in, in our construction. And, and that meant everywhere, not just case by case. So. I would say that was, to me, the major challenge, and, and that certainly incorporates the water treatment system. That ended up, again, ultimately successful, but the the project that we have here is probably one of two biologic iron removal systems in the, in the U.S., and probably less than five total in North America um, that we were aware of at the time, and we are undoubtedly uh, the coldest um, to use a biologic mechanism. So uh, while it was a struggle to get to this point, um, it's also kind of fun to be a part of really groundbreaking water treatment systems um, and be able to have made that ultimately successful. Sure. So I'm, I'm wondering, should commercial salmon um, operators be asking for specific training and performance guarantees, as well as operational support when they're going through these processes of, you know, constructing and building these facilities and systems? Um, from my perspective, absolutely. Unless you have staff on board that have gone through the, the very steep learning curve of bringing new RAS systems online, you're pretty much setting yourself up for failure if you don't have a resource that can provide the training and support through that learning curve. A perfectly functioning system can be a total failure if it's not operated properly. So you guys have both been operating these facilities for almost 10 years now. What are some of the most important lessons learned that you can share with our listeners today? I guess I'd have to repeat the admonition to, to get training. Um, you, you need qualified staff running the facilities. I'd get my staff out to as many other hatcheries as possible, see how they, they conduct business, how they maintain their systems, what their main focus is with regard to maintaining good water quality and dealing with the challenges that may come up at these other facilities. Um, we all know that different ways of looking at things can provide solutions that we didn't think of before. And so, you know, just being open-minded, getting around to other facilities and getting as much training as you can for your staff, ask a lot of questions as you're looking into RAS even, um, find the experts, find the facilities that are working, go look at those things and figure out how that does or doesn't relate to your program how your systems might look to fit your needs and ask, ask opinions from the experts as well. Brian Vinci and Steve Sommerfeld at the Freshwater Institute were invaluable to us, bouncing ideas off of them. They were very patient in answering our very basic questions 
helping us to better understand what we might be looking at, guiding us toward potential solutions, and uh, giving us opinions on on directions we thought we might want to head. You know, do do a lot of homework because when you build a new RAS, it's going to be a big investment, and you don't want to do it just based off of of one person's opinion. For sure. And I have noticed that um, after speaking to a few different RAS experts in the industry that um, that experience, that hands-on experience and all that knowledge is so, so important in, in ensuring, you know, the sustainability and, and pushing forward in the industry. So um, I think it'll be super important to ensure that, you know, the, the industry is constantly being educated. Travis, was there anything on your end um, in terms of, you know, important lessons that you've learned? Yeah, certainly much of what Jeff touched on about getting that initial experience. Um, I think for me, if, if people are interested in getting into RAS, um, you know, do look at pilot scale systems. I think that was invaluable training where you're not forced to develop that from day one as a initial production. Um, you get a chance to learn. Um, the other one that I, I think that has been so important to us up here um, in terms of dealing with our complexity is, is the, uh, the people aspect. Um, you really need people that are invested in your system and your programs to make these uh, facilities work. I've been very impressed with RAS systems and feel that they were absolutely the right solution to provide the programs that we do um, within the state. Um, but it really does take an expanded skill set above and beyond what a standard flow through serial raceway hatchery requires. So it's it's really important to be able to get engaged, high quality um, employees to to make these things work and be willing to learn. I, I think every day, um, you almost every day, even after ten years, you're still learning something. Um, so be willing to, um, as you gain experience, you know, have yourself as a manager, have your staff be willing to always look for any way of doing something if if you've got something that isn't right or. Um, things change. It's a much more dynamic situation than I was used to in a, a standard flow-through hatchery. Well, uh, I'm a little disappointed that neither Jeff nor Travis mentioned that one of the most important lessons learned is not to bring a consultant up um, uh, the day after Christmas uh, when it's 40, <laughs> 40 below out. Um, I, I, uh, I do want to thank Jeff for the kind words um, uh, about our assistance uh, with you guys, you know, we used to get emails and calls uh, from you guys on a routine basis, but it, it's been at least 10 years uh, since then. And I think uh, the, the experience and the expertise up there in Alaska and Anchorage and Fairbanks is tremendous. And um, it, it's an important resource for, for other uh, sport fish or wreck fish uh, hatchery program uh, operators and supervisors um, to avail themselves of. You know, I, I meet with a lot of fish hatchery um, program supervisors and operators uh, across the U.S. and in, in, in Canada as well. And there still seems to be a bit of hesitancy when it comes to uh, adopting RAS. I mean, you guys have been so successful at the Hernandez and, and Ruth Burnett fish hatcheries. I think, you know, you've been operating uh, probably a decade now, uh, and, I, and I wonder to myself, you know, some of these other hatchery programs in the lower 48 are facing serious water supply shortages that are, you know, the, the effect of uh, lower snowpack uh, that's driven by uh, climate change, 
and they're seeing increasing water temperatures. Uh, Jeff, you know, we've talked about this in the past. Why do you think that some of these other programs are, are hesitant um, uh, to adopt RAS when, when you guys are shown in a massive way that it can be successful? I guess this is my assumption because I'm not other people, but um, I think probably the biggest thing that scares people off initially is the cost. It's not cheap. It's it's expensive and complex to develop a new RAS facility. And in most locations, you got to put a building over it to gain the, the greatest efficiency or the, the greatest benefit from it. So it's not cheap. It's a real investment. And I think, especially for folks that are actually operating hatcheries, they're focused on making what they have work. You've already got a, a huge investment in infrastructure and existing facility and it's hard to justify walking away from it so as a as a experienced fish culturist you know every day i was problem solving with the facilities i had and it wasn't until i stepped back and and kind of made a list of things we were trying to achieve at the facility and realized that we were pretty much not achieving any of the things that we were hoping to. Number one was to produce healthy fish. We weren't doing that. Number two was to achieve production goals as far as numbers and size of fish. We weren't doing that. And we were violating pretty much every pathology protocol or, or disease management protocol the state of Alaska has ever established due to the facility's inadequacies. Now that we're in the new RAS systems, we've pretty much achieved every goal that we set out to, to achieve from day one, and we've been doing it for a decade. These facilities have weathered 40 below temperatures and historic earthquakes and flooding and uh, really haven't seen any losses. They're bit, they've been pretty darn resilient. And a big part of that is the staff know what they're doing and responding to those emergencies, but the facilities have bounced back too. So I've got to say, we did what we set out to do. And for other people focused on their facilities, their programs, I think it's really tough for a lot of other, other managers, a lot of other programs to, to change the mindset and step back, make a list of those things they're trying to achieve, and then honestly determine whether or not these facilities they're operating are ever gonna get there. You're running out of water, you got temperature profiles that aren't meeting biological needs, you can't isolate. Yeah, it's just a, a tough world out there. And one thing we've tried to do is make it real clear that anybody that wants to come up and tour our facilities is welcome. And we've hosted more than one fish culturist from a lower 48 enhancement program, actually spend time at our hatcheries, working with our staff, netting up fish, adjusting water quality, doing daily water quality tests. So we're happy to be part of that educational process and, and pass on our experience if we can help somebody else, either, either help them adopt RAS because that's the right thing to do or avoid spending the time and energy adopting RAS if it really doesn't fit their needs. But 
Yeah, I kind of going back to your question, I think cost and, and focus. If, um, if you're not really motivated to aggressively pursue RAS, it's going to be a tough, tough time swallowing the cost to build a hatchery. You're not, not thinking you're going to benefit from. And, and the other thing is most enhancement programs are part of a large bureaucracy. You know, there might be a hatchery manager down south running a facility that they, they think might benefit from RAS or even think their entire program could benefit from adopting RAS at some level. But how do they convince the managers above them who convince the legislatures or the commissioners that have the horsepower to find the funding and support the development curve? It took us, you know, we've been operating these hatcheries for 10 years, but it took us 10 years to get there. It's not, a, not an overnight investment um, in time and funding. So it's, it's, uh, it's a haul and people got to be motivated to get there. And I think the thing that motivated us is our, our hatcheries just pretty much fell apart underneath us and we had no choice but to do something different. And uh, we got lucky with the stars aligning for, for support to do something and for the funding. So, so we were lucky, but I also think we had a different focus than a lot of other programs. Yeah, I, I really appreciate those comments, Jeff. And, um, for the listeners, you know, it, it is a, a complex uh, probably rubric uh, for decision making um, that does require you know to step back and. And we've had, uh, of course, you know, Jeff, I've been pushing this uphill for many years, and we've had a little bit of success getting people to do that, uh, Washington State and, and a few other Northwest states to, to look critically at their program and where they could best invest their money. But my point here is that um, for folks who are uh, in state, you know, provincial, federal, tribal hatchery programs, um, the folks in Alaska have, have put themselves out there and, and been very generous with their uh, expertise and time, as Jeff said. And, you know, we always uh, would tell folks, um, you know, just uh, give Jeff or, or the folks uh, up in Alaska a call about the stuff. Go visit them if you can and, and do exactly what Jeff said, because um, th that's the kind of, I think, logical thinking you have to go through to to actually get to there. I, I do want to ask both of you, um, is there anything that you think that would make it easier or, or increase the adoption of RAS for public fish hatcheries? I mean, I guess the obvious one, Jeff, is, the, is cost, right? Make it more cost efficient. But um, anything else that you can think of that would make it more palatable for other programs? I think it's just gaining more experience and, and seeing other people like ourselves that have had success with it. I think there's um, a few cases people get scared off of RAS because they hear one or two cases where systems didn't go as planned or had bad design or something like that, that, that introduced a failure point. And so it's kind of getting over that hurdle. Talk to people that have success with it, you know, whether that's us up here in Alaska, um, commercial operators that are operating it, everything else. It, it really does work very well, but I think people are hesitant to embrace it because it is such a new technology um, and hatcheries have been, from what I've seen, the enhancement side of things, very hesitant to embrace new technology um, at times. So I, I think that's just the biggest role that I see is, is understanding and seeing 
the proof that these work um, and they do work very well. I have no issues with running a RAS facility and would absolutely encourage other people to do it. Um, we see time and time again, issues with water management, disease management, things like that. But I think RAS could be um, really a cornerstone way of overcoming some of these issues in the industry. Um, so I really do embrace people to reach out and, and I'm happy to share our experiences and, and have people come visit. We're not exactly on the way anywhere, but uh, it's, it's an easy plane ride. Just, you know, be prepared for 40 below if you come in January. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, folks can, can look you up on the Alaska Fishing Game uh, website. It, it's uh, Jeff Milton and uh, Travis Heyer. Is that right, guys? Yeah. Well, um, I, I want to thank you guys so much uh, for sharing your time and expertise with our listeners today. It was uh, great to hear the perspective of uh, public fishery professionals you know, who have literally years and decades uh, now of experience with RAS technology. So thanks, guys. Yes, thank you so much, Jeff and Travis. We really do appreciate you being our guests for today's RAS Talk episode. For our listeners, please don't forget that you can catch up with the past episodes of the RAS Talk podcast by visiting raztechmagazine.com. Until next time, be well. This podcast is sponsored by Anovacy. Anovacy, aquatic solutions built for life.